my name's Sophie Scott, meet with colleagues from around the division and the faculty and we have a chat about our lives in science and how we manage life and science and all the other stuff that one needs to get done in the course of a life. <laughs> um, I'm really pleased today to introduce my colleague Gabriella Villiocco, um, with whom I share a profound cultural origin of both having been teenage goths. So <laughs> prepare yourself for tales of teenage boyfriends with files teeth and things like that. Gabriella, welcome. Hi. Thank you, Sophie. It's really great being here. It's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Can I ask you, uh, right at the top, can you remember anything that happened when you were younger, perhaps long before you'd ever thought about what you wanted to do for a living, that now makes you think that was kind of the start of me getting interested in science or, or how are, you know, the sort of scientific area I work in? Well, I was, <laughs> when I was an adolescent, I was a really eager reader of science fiction. Right. Complete junk science fiction. I mean, whatever I could put my hands on. Um, things that, you know, really, really terrible writing, terrible authors and so forth. But the, that was the only genre I was reading. Right. So probably that tells you that you know, science, technology, and uh, what is not here but can be done in the future with mm. science was something that uh, was interesting me yeah. at the time. Yeah. And I continue to read a fair amount of science fiction and watch all science fiction movies that are coming out. Um, so that has been maintained as a little hobby. What did you think of that science fiction film that was about language? Was it called Arrival? That's one that I didn't see, in fact. You have to see it. <laughs> it's basically the um, Worfian hypothesis about uh -huh. language shaping uh -huh. cognition. So if you could... How did I miss it? ...work out the language that they're speaking, you'll under... Or work out... that You can sort of work out what the aliens are thinking if you can work out what uh -huh. their, how their language uh -huh. works. There's a bit where they work out how the language works, which is I'm like, wait, you need to go back to the start here because I've missed something. But it's it's actually a really interesting exploration of that. I'd love to talk to another psychologist or a psycholinguist about that. Go and watch it. And I'll we'll go watch it, it and then we'll yeah. talk about it. Yes. Fantastic. So in terms of sort of academic study, how what were you what were you interested in at school? Was there anything that was taking you in this direction? Um, well, I actually I was not, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do at university. I didn't know whether I w wanted to go on to university um, and get a bachelor in the first instance. What I did know like really strongly is that I wanted to get out of the village where I grew up. Where was that? Um, it's a small village at the feet of the Alps in Italy. It's a farming village. And uh, I mean, it's kind of, uh, at the time I was growing up, it was like 20 years behind the rest of the world. Mm. And uh, it was a, a very, there was, to me, um, it, it was just not a fit for my curiosity about the world and about things. So I wanted to get out. Um, I explore possible options with respect to employment, and that didn't go very far. Um, but then uh, I thought, maybe if I choose a subject at university, where I need to travel, I cannot have it close by, yeah. then that's the way to go. So I chose psychology because uh, I could only do psychology at university uh, in Padua or in Rome, both of which are far enough from uh, my village. And so I had an excuse or a reason 
for moving out of the village. Yeah. Um, I got a bursary and uh, I started in Padova and that's how I ended up uh, in psychology at the undergraduate level. And, uh, and it, it was good. I mean, it really opened up um, a new universe for me. Yeah. And uh, of all the subjects that I studied there, neuropsychology was the one that really interested me the most. And Italy has an incredibly strong sort of intellectual yes. contribution to yes. neuropsychology in particular, yes. doesn't it? Yes, uh, certainly in those, uh, uh, in those times, uh, mm. there, w there was so much excitement around it. There were, and in fact in Padova, uh, in Venice, uh, and then in Rome, there were major centers and major players, in fact. Carlo Semenza was the person I started working with for my undergraduate dissertation in mm. Padova. And, uh, and I continued with him then uh, after the undergraduate degree at the PhD level as Can well. we just very briefly, because it's possible people listening to this won't kind of pick up on the, the historical dimension to this, but can you say a little bit, well, what, when, when we talk about new, sort of neuropsychology in this time, what we mean, because you're talking about patients, we're talking about, yeah, yeah, we're talking about uh, patient work mm. uh, and uh, not necessarily lesion work, but more characterizing the cognitive uh, uh, workings uh, after brain mm. damage of different type. And it's a phenomenally important domain because people like, certainly in the UK, people like Tim Shallis and Elizabeth Warrington were starting to realize you could ask questions about cognitive science and co Looking mental at computations yes. by this route. And it yes. was a highly disciplined and very, it was an extremely kind of technical field, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, uh, uh, and in Italy, indeed, there were a number of uh, uh, players and people connected to Tim Chalice, Brian Butterworth as well here in, uh, in London mm -hmm. and Elizabeth Warrington. And I was really fortunate that uh, indeed Carlos Semenza introduced me to this world yeah. and then uh, also introduced me to Brian Butterworth. So I came to UCL as an undergraduate for an Erasmus exchange period. Let's all just take a minute to burst into tears at a mention of Erasmus, but this is the beauty of the Erasmus scheme, yeah. which the government yeah. has just voted against. Yeah. Um, and that was basically bringing students from all over Europe to different countries for the opportunity yeah. to get involved in research, yeah? Yes, exactly. And so I came here and worked with Brian at the time, uh, we're talking about 1985. Wow. Um, and uh, that was uh, the starting point for my undergraduate dissertation and then actually my PhD as well. Am I right, I've been reading Umberto Eco on this topic, the, the undergraduate dissertation was quite a, quite a big deal pretty, as part of your yeah, degree, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? It was a pretty substantial um, piece of work, it's not the same. It's, I, I think, more comparable to an MSc dissertation yeah, in, yeah. Uh, in England. Um, and in fact, the degree also uh, was a five years degree. So it really is. So it it's is a, uh, like yeah. bringing together the undergraduate and the MSc. So, and I worked for that on two areas. One was uh, the noun verb dissociation in aphasic patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, this, uh, this finding that some patients, primarily with lesion posterior, posteriorly, have more problems with nouns, and those patients in, instead with Broca's aphasia tend to have more problems with verbs. 
and then the other area, which by the way, something, you know, where I did my first imaging study on with you a few years later. (laughs) Right, indeed. Um, And then the other aspect where I worked on was uh, subject-verb agreement. Uh, the fact that the subject of a sentence needs to agree with its verb and when people make mistakes with respect to that. Yeah. Um, those were also times where modularity of mind, the Fedorian idea that indeed uh, all cognitive functions can be kind of uh, independent and uh, within each cognitive function you have different levels, each mm-hmm. of which is working in an indeed independent manner from the others. Um, it was very strong. Yeah. And uh, what all I was doing in my work was, in a sense, uh, trying to go against test these hypotheses mm-hmm. and see to what extent, indeed, those effects, like subject verb agreement or also the noun verb dissociation, can be explained uh, um, rather than uh, in grammar terms. It uh, can be ex- explained in terms of semantics. What did you find? Um, So, with respect to subject-verb agreement, uh, um, what I found was that indeed you do have some strong semantic influences on the process. Can you explain what that means? What it means is that, uh, um, uh, so the the basic modularity thesis is that uh, uh, subject-verb agreement is one of those uh, truly encapsulated processes and uh, they do not, uh, um, it doesn't matter what the words that are being used mean at all. And so when people make a mistake, with respect, for example, saying the road to the lakes uh, were whining, um, that uh, cannot be explained in terms of semantics, yeah. the meaning. Uh, what I found instead was that there was a deep influence of the meaning. So, for example, people would make more mistakes uh, in cases like uh, the label on the bottles, where you cannot have the same lab- label on many bottles, but you need to assume that there is a separate label. label. So there is a plurality. Yeah. But this is at the conceptual semantic level, not at the syntactic level. Then cases in which you do not have uh, this uh, semantic support. And uh, uh, I explore this in different languages that have different forms of agreement, so number agreement in English, plural and singular, uh, gender agreement uh, in Italian, Spanish Mm. and French, uh, where all nouns are either masculine or feminine. And uh, I found parallel um, effects Mm. in uh, in the different languages. I explore that uh, in uh, uh, neurotypical individuals uh, and uh, also a little bit in patients with Broca's aphasia, and uh, uh, where, I mean, there was no conclusive finding, but I think one interesting aspect was that they were even more susceptible to the influence of the meaning than the neurotypical individuals. And uh, yeah, so this was my beginning of uh, kind of uh, going in the direction of uh, trying to account for language phenomena using non-linguistic principles, which is probably the most, uh, uh, the biggest thing about my career. This is all what I've been doing, is Mm -hmm. really to try to understand what are the foundational principles, which are not necessarily linguistic at all, that underscore 
language, different language properties. Yeah, across languages and across populations. And it's, I mean, it's worth just taking a second to emphasise how important that approach is because the sort of traditional uh, psycholinguistics approach was almost like the first modularity of mind kind of argument, wasn't it? It's yeah. saying you've got this very encapsulated separate language system yeah. and that's why you have apparently commonalities across all you know human yeah. spoken languages yeah. and it's because you've got this almost with a kind of implication this is what you inherit you know that yep. you're, well that was the yeah. thesis yeah. that was the Chomskyan thesis and then you've got this thing arriving kind of yep. fully formed and it's separate so to actually be able to say we can break aspects of this down by asking questions that have nothing to do with language is, is actually huge yeah so that's uh, um, that's for my PhD most of the work for my PhD actually I did in the States where were you in the States? I was in uh, Arizona, in Tucson. Um, I met in Trieste. Uh, so my PhD is from Trieste, not from Padova. And there I met Merrill Garrett uh, at a conference. And uh, I just asked him, can I come <laughs> in your lab for a while? <laughs> Merrill was uh, one of the main proponents, in fact, of the modularity of mind. Um, and working in uh, language studies. I mean, he's uh, the person who introduced psycholinguistics to the world, in yeah. fact, at MIT. Um, so I thought it was, uh, it would have been amazing to work with him. And he said, yes. Yeah. So off I went uh, to Arizona. What was that like going from um, to Arizona? Well, it was a cultural shock, a complete cultural shock, Tucson, Arizona in particular, because uh, so, well, I mean, still a bit of a cowboy land. So to me, shocking things were the fact that people had guns. Yeah. Uh, the fact that a police helicopter could light up your bedroom while you are in your bed at night while they are <laughs> trying to find some person yeah, uh, kind yeah. of around there. So those were big cultural shocks, the car, the use of the car and all these things were very, very different. But again, I mean, the primary envir environment for me was uh, university, mm. which was quite diverse. Yeah, um, there were people from uh, all over the world, and that was uh, that was very, very, very good. And um, yeah, and it was incredibly stimulating and incredibly, mm. incredibly good. And Merrill Garrett was an amazing supervisor because uh, I think, especially at the beginning, he didn't believe a single word of what I was saying, yeah. but patiently was listening to me, and most importantly, was not telling me, this is all rubbish, yeah. you should do this. Yeah. But he was letting me do what I felt was the right thing to do. Yeah. So I always had uh, enormous freedom which is an amazing, I mean, we're really fortunate as academics mm. to have that, um, from the beginning. Yes. No, it's, it's a really, is, it's a tremendous strength to what we get to do, and it's really something worth fighting for. Yeah. It's amazing. So you're in Arizona, you're doing your PhD, although your PhD is technically it's happening in Trieste. Um, how did that, did you then stay in the US after your PhD? Yes, so I finished my PhD. Um, I flew back from Arizona briefly to defend, and then I went back to Arizona. 
I had, uh, um, and then everybody in the lab were applying for jobs, mm. uh, for uh, lectureship. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe I should do it. <laughs> so I started applying for jobs. And uh, I did uh, uh, get an offer from a few places, but I decided to go to Wisconsin. And, uh, and then, so next. I am uh, at University of Wisconsin as an assistant professor. Right, yeah. Um, so I hardly had any postdoc, mm. like a few months, uh, while I was uh, waiting to start my job at Arizona. Um, sorry, at Wisconsin. Was that Madison? In Madison, yeah. yes. And, uh, and then it was a completely different dimension. I mean, yes, I had complete freedom with respect to my research, but I also had four courses per year. And when I say four courses, it's four courses as convener and uh, um, courses that meet two times a week mm. for an hour, an hour and a half each, and uh, for the whole term. And uh, I was supposed to teach all of those lessons, all of those classes. Wow. And to plan them from scratch and so on and so forth. So. It was uh, a really daunting uh, beginning. It's in at the deep end, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, they were nice. So I had, uh, um, for the first year, I only had three. Mm. And then I managed to get grant money. And so I would uh, buy out one of the classes. But still, I was teaching three mm. uh, per, per year. And the first year, it was like <laughs> uh, doing research was a hobby that I was doing in the weekend. During the week, I was just solidly working on my classes and mm. preparing materials, reading, and so on and so forth. What kind of stuff were you teaching? I was teaching research methods. I was teaching um, language and the brain mm. for undergraduates. And then I was teaching psycholinguistics for the graduate students. Um, the graduate class was easier, was uh, usually, I mean, it, it, there's, it's more informal, yeah. fewer people, but the other two were quite intense. And language and the brain was the first time I was teaching something like that. And, uh, and it's a bit, it's interdisciplinary, and to find the right balance between uh, uh, what they need to know about neuroanatomy, what they need to know about linguistics, what they need to know about experimentation was uh, uh, was quite tricky, but eventually um, my answer was, uh, well, just use the first two weeks to gather only those people who need intensive training in whatever aspect, and then you know that they're all on the same page, mm -hmm. and then you can carry on. So the mm -hmm. second year was much better. The first year was a bit of a scramble. Mm -hmm. So, but that's uh, that's how it started in uh, in Wisconsin. I I was very lucky to find another mentor, um, Art Glenberg, who um, with whom I had uh, uh, who helped me a lot on the teaching front with materials and uh, and so forth but also in terms of research, in challenging some of the ideas that I had that were non-modularist, but not you know, yeah. anti-modularist enough. So here I am, uh, after having had uh, 
as my mentor, a strong modularist person. I have the opposite, someone who, in fact, contributed greatly to embodiment later on. Mm. So I was uh, influenced by both of them, and I think it was great. It was great to have the opportunity mm. to debate ideas with um, people of this caliber and with very different uh, views. And I think it's one of the things that I really like about academia is it provides a very kind of constructive space where you can have a lot of really meaningful interactions with people you don't necessarily agree with yeah. and actually it'd be explaining why you know why certain views are held. I know it doesn't always work that way, but I think when it most of the time it does and it's respectful and it's thoughtful and people will true. engage with each it other's ideas. It's a really, really important part of what we do. Yes. Yeah. So then uh, I was in Wisconsin for three years, and then I, I had finally a postdoc, uh, one year of research leave uh, at the Max Planck in Nijmegen. Right. And then uh, I, it, it, it was a bit tricky because um, I was supposed to go back to Madison. However, it wasn't clear whether I could go back to the States because when I went to Arizona, I took a, a Fulbright scholarship. And the Fulbright scholarship, just like some funding for Chinese students here, has a, a two years at home residency requirement at right. the end of it. Right. And uh, I never did my two years home residency. I was solidly in the States right. in a job. Uh, all of a sudden, here I am. I cannot extend my visa. Right. And uh, I don't know what is going to happen to me. Yeah. So before I left uh, to go to Nijmegen, on the one hand, uh, I applied for a special visa that would have allowed me to continue to be in the US mm. uh, even if I didn't uh, fulfill this requirement, which is the outstanding visa that sounds really fancy. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then I left and I thought, uh-oh, I better look for jobs in Europe because uh, I don't know what I will be able to do. Yeah. And so I applied uh, in England to a number of jobs and uh, I got a lectureship at UCL. So you were actually at Nijmegen when you applied to UCL, and did you come to UCL via...? Uh, actually, I applied before going to Nijmegen, right. and I did the interview via Skype. <laughs> wow. Back in the day, this yeah. was 1999, so yeah. it was pretty interesting experience. But uh, yes, so, and I was offered a job, and uh, I knew, and I, I didn't know what to do. It was a big decision point, mm -hmm. because... Uh, I left, I was in Nijmegen, then I heard that my visa went through, so I could go back to the States. Uh, I had the offer at UCL, I had a counter offer from Madison, mm. and uh, because I was in Nijmegen, I didn't have much pressure to make a decision, yeah. and there I was, I didn't know what to do. And then uh, life kicked in, my father became blind in Italy, and right. the idea of being so far away yeah. just uh, was unacceptable, especially in wintertime. And, yeah. and so it was, uh, then it turned, turned out to be an easy decision to make, and I just yeah. decided that uh, I was going to UCL. Well, I'm sorry yeah. that it was for a sad reason, but that's uh, <laughs> UCL's benefit. Can I very briefly ask you what it was like at the Max Planck in Nijmegen? Because it seems like an amazing place, and I've only ever visited it. It, it, it is an amazing place. So. I went there with two of my PhD students, 
And I think they also benefited greatly of being there. Mm. Um, it's uh, a place uh, where ideas, I mean, it's really just that because it is only research, um, and I'm not, not quite sure how to express it, but anyway, people are interested, really interested in ideas. Mm. There's not anything else, there's nothing else in the work environment that comes in the way yeah. of really debating ideas and uh, testing them mm. rigorously. Um, it was uh, amazing to work with Pim Leffelt, yeah, who was the director at the time, and he was also my sponsor the year because uh, at the t at the time I was primarily interested in language production. Mm. Uh, so that was uh, um, I learned a lot from him, not just uh, in terms of uh, science, but primarily in terms of how to manage a place, uh, how to make sure that you give people. You know, their own space to explore things, but then you bring bring it all together. Mm. How you manage a meeting, like when you have it one hour and you're yeah. chairing a meeting, how do you manage that in a way that everybody will be quite happy at the end, mm. but also you're in control and you finish on time, yeah. and you get something done out of it. So those are all things uh, that uh, I learned during my year at the Max Planck. Um, I also, had opportunities to have many debates with him because again, Pim also, just like Merle, was a strong modularist person. So I had indeed the opportunity to debate things uh, uh, quite a lot, mm. which was useful. It was uh, it was good. Um, so no, it was uh, it was really a good experience. Yeah. Um, but I was ready to go by the end of it. I was ready to come back and yeah. be my own person in my own lab. And uh, yeah, happy to take back, you know, all the teaching and the admin that comes with it. Yeah. But uh, so, yeah, so, but it was, uh, it was a good experience. And what was it like coming to UCL? Um, it was, uh, well, in a sense, it was familiar. I was here as an undergraduate. Um, it was, uh, uh, it was easier than Madison in some ways mm. because uh, indeed there's, uh, there was less teaching. Um, I also came with a big grant, a Human Frontier grant, which I started uh, when I started my appointment here. Yeah. And so I, had, uh, I was fortunate enough to have you know, uh, resources for yeah. indeed getting started right away. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I thought, uh, well, I... At the beginning, I made uh, a bit of the usual mistake that when you pop from one culture to another, you make that because this is an English speaking country, perhaps it's going to be more similar to the States than what it is. Mm. So I learned during my first year that that was a mistake. Um, so many things are different at all levels. <laughs> so that took a bit of adjusting too, uh, but otherwise uh, I think UCL has been a great place for me mm. from the beginning onward. Also when I came finally I had the opportunity to meet my neuropsychology hero Tim, and Tim, Chalice, uh, Tim yeah. Chalice as well as Elizabeth Warrington, yeah. so I was the happiest person in the world. And uh, I, uh, Tim has been mentoring me since the very beginning I was here. Mm. And that was uh, amazing. Again, uh, 
fantastic person. Um, and uh, David Shanks mentored me from the yeah. beginning as well, which also was uh, really, really, was really good yeah. in a completely different way. So I had far fewer science discussions with uh, David. It was yeah. more the practicality and the job um, in its entirety, not just research. With yeah. teaming that, it was really focused on research direction and uh, yeah. uh, it was really useful. When I certainly when I came to UCL for my PhD, I was at the Polytechnic of Central London, and um, I couldn't believe that we arrived at the same time, and I couldn't believe I was in the same building as Tim Shallis. I was absolutely astounded. The person whose book I'd read and whose papers I'd read was yeah. teaching us. He took us for research methods, and tutorials. It was incredible. It was such a privilege. It was an absolute honour. I should also say that uh, Tim's wife, uh, Maria Tallandini, was my developmental psychology teacher in uh, Padova when That's I was amazing. undergrad. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she remembered me. <laughs> she's lovely. And, and of course she is a very prominent sort of um, psychodynamic. Yes. Because uh, yes. I bumped yes. into her when I was working in Cambridge, yes. working with the, um, the, the Winnicott Centre. Uh -huh. She did lots of work there. Yeah. And I was like, hey, well, we know each other, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So at UCL, I think one of the things that I've been really impressed by, by your achievements at UCL, that you, you've genuinely you kind of managed to hit a kind of triple threat level of you run a really good, well-managed, productive research group that is large, and that's not a trivial thing to manage, and you get money for it, and you publish fantastic papers, some really lovely Thank studies you, come out of your lab. But then you also have a really strong commitment to teaching, and you've taken on admin roles, like senior admin roles within the faculty and the faculty has changed a lot since you and I have been here at the yeah. end of the 90s yeah. onwards. Yeah. So how, if you can briefly explain, <laughs> how do you approach this? I mean, even down to things like I've been really impressed about how you've like managed the careers of people that work in your lab. You've really kind of got, you seem to be able to take very macro views and very micro views and not do either in a way that feels intrusive to people. Oh, thank you. That's uh, really, really nice to hear. Um, so with respect to research, uh, in the, the the, the drive has always been curiosity and what is next in our quest of indeed finding these building blocks that can account for language and communication. Um, and uh, I've been fortunate to always get funding for mm. it. Um, and then, uh, but then, you know, I've been here for quite some time. I like to think that, uh, you know, my office is my second home. So clearly, I feel the responsibility also to see the place thriving. Mm -hmm. And uh, this has been for me the motivation indeed with respect to taking up uh, uh, management administrative roles, um, thinking that perhaps uh, I can contribute in some way, not just uh, yeah, I can, of course, one of the goals is to contribute to the science internationally and globally. Yeah. The other goal is also to contribute to make the place where I am yeah. nicer for myself and for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And that has been the, the drive for taking the management roles. Um, hasn't been always easy at all, but uh, has been uh, useful for me in, uh, in many levels with respect to uh, managing people in my lab also. I've learned from uh, my experiences outside the lab, how to better manage people in my lab, mm. um, and vice versa. 
uh, so that uh, has been uh, has been useful. And if you think about it, especially as it you begin to be more senior, a lot of your job is managing people. Yeah, uh, it's not as much as uh, doing the actual experiment, but it's managing the motivation, the mm -hmm. desires, and uh, fears of those who are in fact doing that, and try to help them through a pathway that yeah. is uh, whatever they want to do. Can be in academia, may not be in academia. Mm. So in fact, uh, I lost uh, a PhD student who decided at some point uh, that actually what he wanted to do at this point in, that point in his life was to go in Africa and uh, train interpreters for, for the deaf to uh, interpret the news. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, that's great. <laughs> How can I facilitate that? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we worked together in order for him to be able to get the most from the academic work he had done to that point yeah. in order to then uh, use it yeah. and when he was moving to the next step. So, yeah. uh, and uh, of course, uh, we all care about the, the career trajectory of the people we have in the lab. You, see, you say that, uh, <laughs> I can certainly think of people who I've seen or I've worked for who are perfectly lovely people are a lot less interested. They don't really consider that to be their problem. It's, it's on you. And I, that has, it, it, I, I think we should, I mean, it's a real privilege if people want to work with us. Young yeah. people oh, yeah. are going to give up bits of their lives to Absolutely. come and be in our labs. I think we should be doing everything in our power to make sure that they get the most from that. And that whatever it is they want to do next, we help them get there. Absolutely, especially if you think about it. I mean, it's not a nine to five job. No. And uh, there's uh, so few in the incentives on the way. I mean, papers are not very many that yeah. you manage to publish. And to publish one, you have rejections on three. Grants, even worse, you have rejection yeah. on ten in order to get one. Yep. So it's not an easy, uh, an easy road. And yes, the, they, they clearly are instrumental to our success. Mm. And uh, they need to be able to then uh, yeah. develop their own, uh, their own career. Um, I think it's great what Pulse uh, has been doing with respect to early career, and the faculty too, with respect to early career um, mm. researchers and trying indeed to provide uh, a framework for mentoring, for networking, for sharing information, for you know dry yeah. run of job interviews or of uh, grant interviews and things like that. I think that's all mm. incredibly useful. I think the PIs also have, I mean, knowledge of the field that can also it can always come in and is important to you know, also provide more direction mm. and uh, the letter of reference and uh, but it's not just the letter of reference it's to kind of it's get the introductions, them it's the introduction and kind of yeah. push them kindly or not so kindly when it's time for them to go yeah and uh, just uh, force them make sure that they do apply that they do uh, kind of uh, write their CV well mm. and all of these uh, all of these things and um, I mean we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to but something that I was very impressed by was how you and in fact you because you did this I started doing something more, more like it in my lab like you more senior people who've been postdocs in your lab like Dave yeah you kind of really took care that like so he became like a research manager in your lab yeah. and that was a, a kind of there was like a structure to what he did there and yeah. I, I 
I, I incorporated elements of that into about how I manage, yeah. you know, for postdoc progression, yeah. make sure people get promoted, but also actually make someone the research manager of the lab. Yeah. So they've got yeah. that, and they also then have more yeah. responsibility, yeah. and they get something yeah. for that. And they learn how to run their own lab mm. afterwards. It's yes, a huge which thing. Is, yeah. uh, which is a huge thing. It's yeah. really, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's easy to, because it's not written into anything, that, you know, that you, you have to, and if you hadn't done it, I don't know if it would have occurred to me, but I thought it was a really good idea and I nicked it. So yeah. <laughs> and finally, he found his own path yeah. and now he's his own person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's great. It's really great. Just to see, to be somewhere for long enough to see these kind of progressions yeah. happen is an honour yeah. as well. Yeah. Can I ask another question? So it's brilliant being a scientist and we have these fantastic jobs, but it's not all of life and there's lots of other things that you need to worry about and think about. Um, would you be happy to talk a bit about your experience being a working mum, mom. being a working parent? Yeah. Because that's another thing we have in common. We both yeah, we had, had babies. Yeah, we had a child at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> and at the same age. <laughs> and at the same age, right. which was, it seems very young to me now, but we were, um, all, of, all of my paperwork from the hospital suggested no one else thought I was young. So. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Let's not say the age. What do you think? <laughs> right. So I um, I haven't had uh, very stable relationships uh, throughout my life, actually. <laughs> so I ended up. I mean, it was not calculated to have a child um, after I became professor. Same here. Uh, which is what happened uh, quite late. I mean, I suppose before it was uh, indeed not having a stable relationship and moving around countries that also didn't help in having a stable relationship. So nothing against uh, trying to have babies or have babies earlier on. Yeah. Absolutely. This I absolutely. just wanted to make absolutely clear. Yeah. It was not calculated. It was just not happening and not the right time. Um, then, uh, so it happened, I thought I was in a relationship stable enough, and uh, I thought that that seemed like just the right time to do it. And it happened, and uh, my son Tommaso was born, and uh, um, when uh, he was two months old, in fact, the relationship ended. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm yeah. sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, so I found myself being a single mother. Single mother with, and working. Uh, and working, nine. and uh, with uh, a baby. And at the time, now things are so much better, um, the maternity leave was four months, mm. which was a really short amount of time, time. really yeah. short. Now things are indeed uh, so much better. But I, so Uta Fritt, she gave me the most important piece of advice that anybody ever gave me in this respect, that is just that use all of your money to pay for good quality childcare. So what I did was to hire someone full-time mm. to be in my place and to look after my son while I was working. Mm. But she was there full-time. And uh, I, because again, our work gives us the flexibility to be able to work at home. Mm. I would spend more time at home, especially at the beginning. And, but she would be there, so I could have uh, you know, a period of uh, interrupted work. And actually, to me, it was really nice to hear them yeah. kind of uh, playing or doing something somewhere else. Uh, that also allowed me to breastfeed and uh, all, mm. these, uh, all these other things. And that worked uh, really, really well. 
and uh, uh, it, it was really tough. Of course, it was tough because it was very uh, hard. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's the relationship ended, uh, and uh, on top of all the hormonal changes that you have at <laughs> that time in your life. So it was a rocky beginning, but then uh, we got into this pattern with the nanny, and uh, and it was uh, it was working. Yeah. And in fact, I could have the mental space to actually devote to my work. Yeah. I could come and work here during the day, knowing that they were home, and it, that was uh, the the way that worked for me. And I think that's something that. Um the only thing that I can say for sure, because I didn't know how it was going to work out for me, it took me a while to kind of find something that was a, the good rhythm for me. Um, and it was kind of actually the opposite. I took much longer off on maternity leave, but I never, I just brought my son into work a lot. And because I only live around the corner, and my PhD students and postdocs just got used to having a baby in lab meetings. And, you know, I was writing papers with the baby in the corner in the office. But that was what worked out for me. And I think the only thing I would probably say if I've learned anything from this is don't, Assume, you know, don't don't stress yourself out by thinking you can work out in advance how it's going to be. You'll yeah. know what works for you and find a way of doing no, it. And, and you'll know because it feels right. Exactly. You can't. Things you just happen. cannot predict. Right. And you don't give yourself extra grief for not being able to do something you planned to do. Let yourself be flexible enough to work out what works for you because it feels like forever. It's a tiny amount of your life, really, but it's an incredibly difficult time. Yeah. You're not getting sleep. There's all sorts of other things that worry you. The last thing you need to be worrying about is stressing about how you manage your working day. Yeah. You just, you know, you find what works for you and then you go down that route. Don't, don't, yeah. don't knock yourself. There's no perfect way that everybody else is managing it that you haven't worked out yet. I should say, Nanny and Tommaso have been coming to, to work yeah. as well yeah. on many, many, many occasions too. Yes, but the, he was with her. Yeah, yeah. That was just giving me the ability to concentrate on something else. Yeah. Well, to be with them, any break or whatever, but yeah. then to concentrate. So it's perfect. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's what works for you, and that's that's the really yeah. important thing. And I think it's a, you know, I know some people who've come back part time, and that's actually been the rest of their career while their children are still exactly. in school. Exactly. So you know, there are so many different models. Exactly. Yeah. yeah part time was not an option because of money, uh, but the yeah yeah, yeah of <laughs> so but anyway that uh, that worked for the first year and a half, and then he started going to nursery, mm. and I started having a nanny picking him up and bringing him home, and staying with us until seven o'clock in the evening, so that mm. again. Most of the time I was there as well, but occasionally or whenever I, I could be at work, come back a little later yeah. and uh, feel you know, that uh, he was taken care of, he had his dinner at the right time, and so I didn't need to worry about it. Uh, and I think one of the things that, um, I, mean, I, I bang on about this on the podcast, so people are allowed to skip forward if they've gone, oh, she's talking about this again, but um, because there is a lot more flexibility in an academic job, yeah. I mean, it is... There's lots of work that needs to be done. There's people you need to manage, but no one ever says, well, that paper was written at the weekend. It doesn't count. It was This this grant was written in the evening. I won't fund exactly. it. Exactly. You know, as long as exactly. stuff gets done, we have got more flexibility. There are lots of jobs which are, they start at this time, they end at that time. You couldn't have a baby in there with you. You couldn't take the afternoon off and work at home. And that's actually something that I, you know, I think we should... We should talk about more because it's something that people worry about, but there are aspects that actually can make life slightly easier, given yeah. that it is all pretty hard work, particularly if you're a single yeah. mum. Yeah. 
Often time, I should say the nanny was coming in the weekend as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, that makes sense. If anything else, yeah, to allow me to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> so, and yeah, so that's uh, the way, and I have had nannies, we counted them, there were 24, okay? Wow. We <laughs> went through 24 nannies, including a manny on the way, all the way until this year. This is mm. the first time we don't have anybody anymore. Is 13 now. Yeah. And uh, yes, he can put something in the microwave if I'm not around quite yet. And yes, he can go to school by himself. Yeah. And, uh, and so forth. So, yeah, but it's been uh, an interesting journey. Yeah. But a really worthwhile journey. Yeah. So I, for example, I remember one nanny who came to me in tears saying, I need to leave you earlier because I got a postdoc. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh, and I look at her, postdoc, being nanny for me, yeah. and thinking, right, yeah. okay, what's wrong with you, let's talk through this, because she was working in philology, very right. hard to get postdocs, and yeah. you know, to get an academic career yeah. going in that field, yes. so she was doing nanny job work, so while oh. in London, she was Italian, because in this way she could go to the British um, uh, to the, the British Library yeah, and yeah. do some work when she was not doing the mm. nanny work. And, mm. uh, you know, but she came to me in tears saying, I have a postdoc in France. I never, th <laughs> I, I submitted an, apl an application without thinking I would get it. And it's like, you're kidding me. Okay. It's okay, it's so, okay. It's yeah. okay. And can I ask, do you, do, does Tommaso speak Italian as well as English? Do yeah, you speak does. it at home? That's We've been, uh, I've been quite, uh, uh, proactive uh, in uh, making sure also that most of our nannies would speak Italian yeah. as their first language. Yeah. For some of our nannies, I don't even know whether they speak English, to be honest, yeah. because, because uh, you, the interaction in the home has always been in Italian. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so and he speaks English at school? It's, uh, yeah, so he's he speaks English at school, yeah. and uh, yeah, no, he's, uh, he's bilingual now, he's learning to write in Italian for his uh, GCSEs mm. because uh, that we haven't done very much at home, although he has been reading. That also, I've always bought books in Italian so that yeah. he could uh, start reading in Italian as well. So that's, uh, his Italian is a bit funny, but uh, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I can guarantee it's better than my son's. <laughs> and indeed mine. In fact, the only Italian I speak, when I first moved to London, I worked just around the corner from here in a kilt shop. And um, <laughs> I worked with, it was, one of the women I worked with was from Sicily. And um, she just swore at me all the time. She used to get quite irritated with me. So the only Italian I speak you is only know swear really words. filthy Sicilian. Okay. <laughs> In Sicilian. Yeah, okay. So she, was, <laughs> she was it witches, you're Svega. <laughs> Not so bad. <laughs> that was that was that was friendly. Okay. She was in Strega mood. Then everything was okay. okay. I'm being very unfair. She's lovely. We're still we're still friends on Facebook. <laughs> um, so the the other thing is, and I, you've already got a lot going on here. So you've got management roles at UCL. You're running an amazing research team, and you've got teaching, and you're a working parent. But um, is there space? Is there anything else that you enjoy doing? What do you do that's not science? Do you uh, other things that you still love? You still love science fiction? I still read science fiction, yeah, I still read a fair amount. Um, I do, I started doing yoga, which I'm finding like useful to mm. unwind. But to be honest, I mean, I, I was thinking about, I was listening to a BBC Radio 4 
show a few days ago, where they were talking about rest and what people do to rest mm. from the stresses of work. And uh, I was thinking, you know, if I can get in the mood to write the paper, that's like so restful for me. It's yeah. like everything else uh, is kind of not as important anymore. Mm. And I'm really engaged and engrossed in the, um, in the ideas. So I don't know, maybe I'm a bit weird in this respect. No, I, I, there's not one answer to this, and everybody's got something different. And if you're finding that from actually academic writing, then brilliant. <laughs> but writing, we are professional writers, and we never think of ourselves as that. But it's a, it is a huge part of our job. And if it's something that you're taking pleasure from, then so much the better. Yeah, so beyond that, I must say, no, I don't have much time to do it. Do you still like goth music? I went to see The Cure a couple of years ago, and I hugely enjoyed myself. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I haven't seen the Curie in a long time, I must say, unfortunately. But I still listen to them from time to time. Mm. I have got into much more into classical music because of my son, who plays the piano and the clarinet. Wow. And uh, who is um, a very musical person. Mm. So we started going regularly to classical music concerts. Uh, especially piano recitals, but not just piano recitals. Mm. So that's uh, another thing that also we've started doing together when we he was quite small, six years old, and I would put him in a cab at uh, the interval time because he would be nearly asleep. He was yeah. so past his bedtime yeah. that, you know, but no, 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 he can last the entire concert and enjoy it all. That's but wonderful. He was really enjoying doing those kind of things. Yeah. So. Oh, that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. I think um, one of the... And because I'm totally, I was totally ignorant yeah. with respect to classical music. And so, so it's something you're really sharing and learning about together? It's something we were yeah. learning together. But then, uh, you know, I have a very good friend, Fred Dick, the director of Putney. Uh, who instead had a career in classical music as a mm -hmm. violinist before coming to neuroscience. And uh, so we have done uh, many of these concert going together. And he has been very helpful in also choosing where to go. And yeah. So forth. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. We'll have to get Fred on this as well, find out more <laughs> about that, because that sounds like yet another very interesting route into science. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Is there anything else that you've, you've, I mean, there's no point having regrets, but if you look back on how things have gone for you, would you have ever at any point done things differently? Or are you happy with how it's gone? You know, I, I found myself so many times uh, having to just deal with what life threw in my face. Yes. And, uh, you, you know, it's, uh, on the one hand, you realize, well, I can plan only up to a point. Yeah. Because really, then life is throwing you something mm. on your face, and you just need to deal with it. Yeah. And deal the best you can. Uh, so I don't know in terms of regrets. No. I think, you know. I, no, I think that's completely appropriate. Yeah. yeah. And would you, if you had your time over, would you always, would you still go into psychology? Well, actually, I do have a regret. That is, uh, if I were to start again, I would have had a longer postdoc. Yeah, yes, for any, <laughs> right, any and I'm going all, yeah. straight into an academic, uh, um, an academic post. Mm. But yeah, at the time, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Maybe because the Italian thing, you want to have 
the secure job and being on a soft money for a postdoc sounded like a very terrible thing to yeah, do, yeah. but actually it's not. Uh, so if I could roll back in time, I would have stayed in Tucson a little longer yeah. before throwing myself into <laughs> the old mix. Get even more research done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very, very much, Gabriella. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening. This has been What Works. My name is Sophie Scott.